Okay, we're doing um, rules 4.1 through 4.4 today. And we're gonna be doing uh, several, uh, uh, actually three problems today, because um, they're relatively short and I think they're also very useful. So um, this is in three parts, uh, truthfulness, rule 4.1, truthfulness in statements to others, um, 4.2 and 4.3 deal with communications with non-clients. And then 4.4, respect for rights of third persons, which has a, a couple of provisions that we've, we've talked about, I think a little bit in the past already. <clears throat> so 4.1, in, in the course of representing a client, a lawyer shall not knowingly make a false statement of material fact or law to a third person. So this obviously doesn't, pro doesn't prohibit a lawyer ever making a false statement of fact to anyone. It's only in the course of representation. If a lawyer makes a uh, false statement, a deceitful statement to others outside of representation, they might be liable under 8.4, depending, uh, you know, sort of depending on how serious it is, what the matter is. And it's, and it's also limited to a false statement of material fact. Now, we, um, again, material is not defined anywhere in the, uh, in the model rules, although you can sort of uh, assume that it means uh, kind of a, uh, a sort of de minimis standard is something more than trivial, something that's, that's relevant to the matter. Okay, and let's see. Um, Obviously, a lawyer is required to be truthful uh, with others to others on when dealing on a client's behalf, but has generally has no duty to inform an opposing party of relevant facts. So you either don't say anything about a fact, or if you do say it, it should be truthful. Uh, a misrepresent, the, of course, the fuzzy area is misrepresentation, uh, which you can do by. Um, omitting important facts, important details perhaps, uh, and let's see, partially true and but misleading statements are the equivalent of false statements. So, okay, with that, we can start on the first problem, which is 12-1 emergency food stamps. And let's see. All right, this is on page 705. I'm gonna give you five minutes on this one. Uh, I don't think it'll take more than that. Uh, but answer these questions on the screen. Uh, did the professor violate either one of these rules, 4.1 or 8.4C? If so, do you think he did the right thing? And then what other options did he have other than the course that he took? So I will see you in five minutes. I think everybody's back. Um, Dan Pierce, what do you think? Did, uh, did Professor Simon bring, uh, violate either 4.1 or 8.4C? Uh, yeah, we talked about um, he didn't uh, violate 4.1 because 4.1A uh, says material fact, and this just isn't 
uh, you know, the misrepresentation here isn't material uh, at all, or you know, to the to the representation. But um, you know, by the letter of the rule, he did violate 8.4 C because I mean, he misrepresented who he was or had his uh, you know the paralegal do so, but he's responsible for uh, their actions in this case. Um, we thought that it was that he did the right thing, uh, nonetheless. Um, you know, it, we thought it was a tough situation when you have to do something like that because somebody did it to you first. And you know, this yeah. is almost a case of actually where two wrongs uh, do make end up making a right, but uh, those are far okay. and few between, we suppose. All right. First of all, yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, um, there's no violation of 4.1 or here because of the um, because of this was not a. a, a material fact related to the representation, but 8.4c does not require materiality. So that was good. Um, and you think he did the right thing uh, because the, uh, the uh, director's representatives did the right, lied first, so therefore you could lie in return. Okay. Um, do you feel comfortable with that as a general principle or is that this, this example? I think this example, because um, it kind of comes through that, um, I guess you're sort of familiar, uh, you know, with their practices or how they tend to be. Um, so, you know, the workaround uh, in this situation mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, you're, it's not like you're advancing an unmeritorious claim for this immediate aid. Um, you know, they were the ones that uh, uh, were derelict in their duty. So. Okay. Um what do you see any downside to doing that though? Uh sure. I mean uh, they'll continue to jerk around your client like people that you know they know are represented by you um to you know bait you into having to do that every time, right? Uh people are uh tit for tat like that. So maybe you've caught them out on this instance, but the, uh, they might continue to do the they might target future clients of yours. Uh, to get back at you. Yeah. Um, should that matter? We talked about this a little bit. I mean, comparing the, you know, comparing the, the interest of your current client, right? Uh, and weighing that against the interest of future clients. Like, like I, as, as I've said, you know, these future clients don't even exist yet. Um, is that a is that a conflict of interest? Do you think? Uh, still me or someone else? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'll uh, stick with you. Um, I don't know. Uh, this uh, seems so minor, right? Uh, conflict of interest. It, it like does. Uh, I suppose down the line, it does make you know the future cases. Mm -hmm. Like I said, for your future clients, a little bit more difficult, but. Uh, if you just okay, do so this instance, every time, it's not a, that quite big a deal. Okay, so this particular instance is a, a relatively minor one. But what about the, the general idea, uh, because this has come up before, right, of sort of um, maybe compromising your efforts on behalf of a client in front of you because you don't want to antagonize uh, either a judge or a prosecutor that you'll be appearing against in the future, and you know that that could hurt your future clients. Is that and this, I'll open this up to anybody. Thank you, Dan. Um, is that a conflict of interest under the rules?
Brian? I don't think it's technically a conflict of interest under the rules. Okay, technically, but. Well, I mean, you know, like for with you know, if, if you're a criminal defense lawyer, um, the uh, the prosecutor's a repeat player, right? They uh, mm -hmm. there's a institutional uh, power imbalance. Um, you uh, you're you're gonna have to acknowledge that, but you, if you don't have a client, you you can't really have a conflict of interest. Okay, yeah, so um, looking at 1.6, so we have um, rules for current clients and former clients. We also have a, a rule that uh, deals with prospective clients. Nothing, I mean, there's no rule that talks about future clients, right? Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to pull, share this. Here's 1.7, current, uh, uh, current client conflicts. Uh, if this were a, a conflict, it would come under 1.7a2 as a meritorial limitation, because we're talking about the fact that uh, your representation of a current client may be limited by something. Uh, and it identifies the lawyer's responsibilities to another client, a former client, or a third person, or a personal interest, right? So to some extent, I mean, if you're, if you're, if the lawyer is sort of restrained by his uh, fear of a bad effect on his reputation, that might be a personal interest. But no, I don't think it does talk about uh, uh, limiting your representation of a current client uh, for the sake of future clients. Should, the, should it do that? Should there be a rule that, that uh, specifies that? And Jacob, what do you think? Uh, I wasn't really going to comment on that, but I don't really think there should be a rule for it. Um, I don't think that's uh, necessary. I don't, you know, obviously I don't have any personal experience with it, but I kind of wonder how frequently that comes up if it would be, you know, necessitate a rule. Um, and also I kind of think you can just reframe it. So it's, you're no longer conflicting with the client because if something's going to piss off the judge or the prosecutor that you do in this case, and it's gonna piss them off in the future, it's mm -hmm. likely going to piss them off now so you could say that by doing this act, I am, maybe there are positive benefits, but it also associates, it's, it has some negative uh, effects associated with it. Mm -hmm. so by doing it, you know, maybe you could justify it that way and say, well, it's not worth doing it because of these negatives that it'll have on this present case. Okay, um, thank you. Austin, you're here. you were up next, I think. Yeah, just for your question of if there should be a rule, I think it would make it kind of hard to, uh, work if you could have a conflict of interest with your future clients, because it could, you know, kind of really permeate into kind of everything you do. I can see that it might be hard to figure out how to draft such a rule. So I think that's, that's a good point, although there, there are problems in drafting other rules as well, and they've, they've sort of found ways around it. Dan? Yeah, I just don't know how, um you would balance such a rule, like, you know, against your hypothetical future uh, clients with like your uh, ethical duty to be diligent for your current client. So. so you couldn't, you couldn't specify a rule to prohibit that or to, you know, to weigh that in as a type of conflict of interest, 
but you can identify the interests of former of future clients well enough to say that hey if i do this it will harm my future clients so if you can do that shouldn't you be able to specify when that sort of thing happens and i think it happens fairly often actually uh most of them being minor relatively minor uh conflicts like this but still i mean it is uh potentially limiting what what the lawyer can do for their current client brian it seems like it would be really hard to go through the analysis and um with future clients right and a lot of the sort of um leeway that you get in the rules comes from like getting informed consent um that would be essentially impossible it's just it it seems like it would be very hard to even if you could come up with the rule to um to make it work in a practical sense. To That's a really good point, Brian. The, yeah, the, if you're talking about future potential clients, unidentified, yeah, then there could never be informed consent from those future clients. Um, which would mean if there if there is a conflict, it would be non-consentable, right? So if if we did consider, if we did consider that kind of future conflict. Um, if you identified such a conflict, it's non-consentable. So you could not proceed. That's a really good point. Um, okay, I I, um, I withdraw my objection. Then I think I think that's I think that's a good argument. Thank you. All right. Um, anybody who thinks that uh, the professor here did did the wrong thing, you disagree with what he, what he did. Brian? The way we discussed it in our group is if you wanted to be scrupulously honest and abide by 8.4c, perhaps you would have to put up with what the paralegal referred to as getting jerked around, um, you know, maybe just for a day. If you just wait to call back the next day, you might not have to pretend to be somebody else to get in, in touch with that person. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just a speculation, but um, you know, if you if you're in this, if you're going to find yourself in this position a lot, and you don't want to make a practice of lying, um, you know, I, I guess yeah. all, all you can really do is is um, tolerate uh, the misbehavior to some extent. Yeah, I think this is not a very uncommon situation. I mean, if you ever try to call any uh, government agency on a Friday afternoon and get anything done, it's probably hard. Uh, Gianna, you popped up for a second. Do you want to say something? I put my hand down because I think that Dan already said this, that although it might not be a violation of 4.1, that it's, you know, a violation of uh, 8.4c in that it's mm -hmm. deceit, but also 8.4a, I believe, because he's directing someone else to violate the rules. But I, I yes. think that was already said, so I put my hand down. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll continue with you, Gianna, and see if anyone else wants to jump in. Um, should the professor have reported his own misconduct to the disciplinary authorities? I mean, uh, I guess based on the rule, I'm looking at it right now. Um, the rule specifically replies to the misconduct, like 8.3 uh, applies mm -hmm. to the conduct of another lawyer. So I don't think that you have to report on yourself. Um, and if you were gonna be that like, you know, um, 
uh, what's the word, uh, you know, tedious with the rules, you might as well just not violate it. Scrupulous, maybe. Scrupulous. I was going to say scrupulous, but I was like, is yeah. that the word? Um, yeah, if you were going to, you know, really uh, adhere to the rules, then why would you even violate the mm -hmm. rule to begin with, right? Okay. So. Um, well, maybe because he felt that um, it was a violation, but it was worth doing because that was how he could help his client, but it was a violation, you know, so that it's sort of that kind of... Um, civil disobedience kind of approach that I've talked about before. Um, and you're right, 8.3 only, re only uh, requires you to report another person's misconduct. Uh, so there's no requirement of for, to report your own. And largely that's, or that's, that's generally rationalized as uh, because it somehow evokes uh, Fifth Amendment rights, a right against self-incrimination, although it's not exactly self-incrimination. But um, but even so, self-reporting can be a mitigating factor if, if there are uh, sanctions or if there is a, a disciplinary action. But again, something this minor, probably not going to happen. Um, would the current rule 1.8e, remember 1.8e, the humanitarian exception, uh, would that permit Simon to simply give Rogers some money for food? Here we go. Just say, I forgot if I don't remember if he was indigent. I think he was, but I mean, it seems like looking at that, if he's uh, if he's basically doing it pro bono, there he would be able to provide, mm -hmm. um, you know, a modest amount of food there. I think based on the language there, I, just, I don't remember exactly if uh, this was a pro bono thing. I think it was, but assuming so it was, for, yeah. he works in a legal aid office, and the cli the client can't pay for any food, so presumably he's indigent. indigent. Yeah, that's that's um, what I figured. So I, I would say yeah. that yes, but based on based on that language, I think he could provide like you know a modest amount for for a short time period. Basically, I think that'd be perfectly fine based on okay uh, E three. I think yeah E three there. Yeah, that'd be E three. Sarah, um, I disagree because I think that this matter is more administrative than a litigation, and so the exception under three would not apply since the. Uh, premise is that the financial assistance must be given in connection with pending or contemplated litigation. And it doesn't seem that this matter is going to be litigated. So what does that mean? That the exception does not apply? Yeah, that that would be my argument. No, you, you've, you've, you've identified the relevant language here. Oh, so I mean that the exception would not apply and the lawyer would not be able to provide um, the indigent client with um, even some small money for food under this provision. Does anybody read that uh, first line differently? Yeah, so doesn't the, doesn't, isn't the, the exception applies after that beginning part, doesn't it there? So that if it's a yeah. pro bono program, and it's, even if it's not like a anticipated or current litigation, 
that you would still be able to apply E3 then, because it's basically after the comma is where the exception applies well, and it separates. Or it's no. not even that. It's not even that complicated. It uh, it basically means this duty does not apply except in the case of litigation, right? Um, a lawyer shall not provide financial assistance in connection with pending or contemplated litigation. This is not litigation, right? This is a mere administrative matter, um, trying to get the client uh, benefits that he he is entitled to. So there's no duty here. There's no duty that would prevent him from giving financial assistance. So that, that's sort of the, the exception that, that doesn't apply, that there's no duty that, that would prevent it from, uh, prevent him from doing that. See that? Okay. Um, again, it, 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 that's an important limitation uh, on the rule. Again, it only applies in the case of litigation. Why is that? Remember, we talked a little about that, that the, the purpose of the rule is to, uh, to prevent lawyers from stirring up litigation by paying clients from, from bringing about unnecessary litigation, that rationale does not apply to a situation like, situation like this, where the client has rights, has legal rights to benefits, and all the lawyers do is doing just trying to help him enforce that right, right? So there's no question in, in that situation of the lawyer trying to buy a, an action, buy a, a case in that way, because he's just, or, or, or there's no question of a lawyer stirring up unnecessary litigation because there's no litigation to be stirred up here. Okay. So nice little walk down conflict of interest uh, memory lane. All right. Um, all right. Any other comments on that? On that? Um, on that problem? Nope. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. All right, we're back. Okay, so let's go on. So we talked about 4.1a, lawyers shall not make a false statement of material fact. There's also 4.1b. Um, and this is that a limited requirement, limited duty to the, the lawyer actually must disclose a material fact. Uh, remember we said uh, uh, in the comment three, I think to the first section said ordinarily there's no requirement to disclose facts to another party. Um, it is necessary uh, uh, though when disclosing that is necessary to avoid assisting criminal or fraudulent, fraudulent act unless that disclosure is prohibited by rule 1.6. And we've talked about this back when we were talking about Rule 1.6. There's this, this uh, interaction between these two rules, right? So 4.1b then says that um, lawyer may not, must disclose a, a material fact when it's necessary to do that in order to avoid assisting a client or um, Uh, a criminal or fraudulent act by a client. Let me just jump ahead a little bit here. Um, so there are a couple of exceptions. Um, remember when we talked about rule 1.6B, um, 
there are provisions that um, okay so a lawyer may reveal information so there is an exception to confidentiality if um, to prevent the client from committing a crime or fraud again specific crime has to be a financial crime essentially uh, in which the law the client has used the lawyer services right so section 1.6 b2 and b3 both deal with that kind of situation all right so what that means is okay um 4.1 b then again says that um lawyer um, may not must disclose unless disclosure is prohibited right and you can rephrase that to say you lawyer must disclose when disclosure is permitted by rule 1.6 right and we've just seen rule 1.6 does permit disclosure in the case of uh, preventing the client from committing a crime or fraud or trying to remedy a client crime or fraud. So in that case, what this what this one boils down to is, okay, so we know that that kind of uh, disclosure is permitted by 1.6. So therefore, this simply means those kinds of disclosures to avoid assisting a, a crime or fraud by a client are required. Okay, again, it, it goes back to the, that uh, concern that, you know, that led to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and so on, the, uh, the concern about lawyers participating in aiding clients in criminal and fraudulent actions. So that's, so I, that's one. I think that like, they like to put that on the MPRE. So good one to remember. All right. Um, here we go. There is some discussion in the book of lawyers and um, undercover investigations in the course of fact, factual investigation. Right? Where did we talk about fact investigation before? When we talked about Rule 3.1, when we talked about the duty uh, or the, the uh, excuse me, the prohibition of bringing uh, non-meritorious claims. Right? We talked about the fact that in some instances that's going to require some factual investigation for the lawyer to find out whether or not there's a basis to the claim, right? Um, so they don't suffer sanctions for violating 3.1. Uh, this rule though, 4.1, may impose some limitations on the lawyer's ability to do those kind of investigations if they have to go undercover to do that, right? Um, there's the uh, on page 708 in your book, it mentions the, the Beatles Club case. And when did this, I don't know when this, 1998 was, yeah. So let's see, there were, so this International Collectors Society was selling foreign postage stamps, maybe from Mozambique, maybe from somewhere else that had images of the Beatles on it, including John Lennon. Um, and that violated their copyrights, copyrighted photographs. So. The lawyer uh, called ICS posing as a stamp collector, right? Bought stamps over the uh, phone. Uh, the 
ICS uh, sought to hold ICS in contempt, ICS defended, arguing that uh, they then should not be able to enforce the order because of unclean hands, essentially, that the, the law, lawyer had violated 8.4C, right? Um, court said no, but the question here was, okay, so that um, the, door, the district court in that instance found that the that courts had allowed lawyers to do this in the case of, um, uh, well, at least lawyers to direct undercover agents in criminal cases or anti-discrimination testers, right? And the casebook mentions those two where you go around to test if, if, if you can rent uh, housing or whatever that, you know, uh, if, if they discriminate against uh, people of color. So it's fairly commonly accepted that government agents, law enforcement can use undercover uh, tactics like this, but it's not so clear about private lawyers. Brian, your hand was up. I was just about to ask about that distinction um, between private and, and government, um, because, you know, obviously, um, even though it's, they're not necessarily being directed, the police use undercover agents all the time. It doesn't, you know, raise mm -hmm. eyebrows. It's unclear. Um, uh, there don't appear to be any cases in New York on this, it's any disciplinary cases. But uh, there's an ethics opinion from the New York County Bar Association that allows dis what they call dissemblance under some circumstances. Uh, now also, in, as a matter of uh, the law of evidence, some courts uh, have al allowed the uh, admitting evidence obtained by this sort of um, investigation to investigate violations of civil rights laws. Others have excluded such evidence. So courts have gone both ways on that. So that leads us into the next problem, problem 12-2 on investigating insurance claims. Okay. So again, I'm going to give you, that's just another show. I'll give you five minutes on this one as well. And um, again, the question is fairly simple. May you investigate uh, using this sort of undercover uh, methodology and why? I mean, support your, your argument. Okay, and I'm gonna give you five minutes again. See you soon. Okay, who wants to make the argument that um, this the uh, the lawyer should not be permitted to do this kind of investigation? Stephen? Yeah, well, our group talked about how uh, for him to do this, he's going to be impersonating a licensed medical professional, and uh, we didn't necessarily go to a specific rule, but uh, that, you know, 8.4 misconduct, that seems like fraud, so. 
Um, probably not fraud, actually, because fraud usually requires um, intent to deceive to obtain some kind of benefit. To uh, just to, an intent to deceive to to gain some kind of benefit, right? Um, and the lawyer is not trying to get in, gain any benefit here. The lawyer is trying to, you know, enforce the law. So, so it's probably not technically fraud, depending on the state statute. But it could be. It could be fraud. Um, it's certainly a misconduct. Certainly dishonest. Um, so it's uh, certainly under that it would be a violation of uh, probably of eight point four C. Um, So, you know, basically looking at the text of the rule, that seems pretty clear. Brian, what do you think? I think uh, what it came down to for us was essentially like, if, if you couldn't find any other way to do it, um, maybe you could just sort of rely on uh, the argument that the, the, the ADA is making here. Um, but I think that there probably are other ways that you could try to find this. You may be able to make a, a specific discovery requ request about Dr. Becker, or you could just go to what whoever the, the relevant licensing authorities are, uh, wherever this is, mm -hmm. um, to look into him. Like maybe this shouldn't be the first thing that you do, because it seems like anything that you ask him while you're pretending to be somebody else is essentially like, you know, and you're gonna re record the call. It, it just seems like anything you say, anything that he says isn't really gonna be, uh, it's all gonna be out of context and is, isn't gonna be as useful as it otherwise might be. Okay, so presumably the lawyer could get gather evidence through discovery with all the time and expense that that requires, but yeah, there, there, are, there is, are other options. Kimberly? We're not even at the point where discovery is on the table because a complaint hasn't been drafted yet. So you might not even necessarily need this information. Like you just have to have enough to move the complaint from the like probable to plausible. So and I don't even know if you necessarily need to go after this information this zealously. So at this point, if anything, you might need this kind of information to to get over the 3.1 hurdle to show that there is a factual basis at least that you've got some actual con conversation that shows uh shows evidence that's good yeah anthony our group actually took the opposite position of kim um in regards to like the procedural hurdles that you have to get over with your complaint uh so like twombly requires plausibility and you don't have access to the regular discovery rules so if you want to vindicate your client's cause and don't want your complaint to be immediately thrown out in the court, I think that doing discovery stuff like this might might be necessary in order to keep your client's complaint there. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Thank you, Anthony. Deborah. So there was two um, approaches that uh, said that the lawyer can take. And the first one was just calling and pretending to um, be a chiropractor and then ask about credentials. And then the second part was the advice that they got from the friend. Um, I definitely don't think the second part would be valid, but just calling and asking about credentials and where they received um, your education and stuff like that, I don't think that will break any ethical rules. And like 
many of my peers just said, it would just help the client be able to file a plausible claim for their client. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, clearly there, there are good reasons to allow such, this, such investigation, but we also seem to have a clear prohibition on the rule against that sort of thing, right? Um, the case, the real case of this is based on, it has a somewhat convoluted history. So this was in Oregon. Uh, this lawyer got in trouble for doing this kind of investigation, calling the uh, Becker here, pretending to be a chiropractor. Um, the uh, agency that he called um, complained to the Oregon bar uh, and they initiated disciplinary actions against him uh, for violating 8.4 C. Uh, his defense with the lawyer's name was Gaddy, G-A-T-T-I. He defended by quoting from a letter that he had once received from the Oregon bar stating that government prosecutors could use this kind of deception um, and citing the, the Beatles case. Uh, the case went all the way up to the Oregon Supreme Court the court said, no, the court decided that the state's ethics rules apply to all lawyers in all circumstances, meaning also applied to prosecutors. So not only was Gaddy penalized, but they took that investigating power away from prosecutors. Um, and that shocked everybody. So uh, about a year after that, the uh, uh, Oregon legislature passed an emergency law uh, sort of restoring this exception for prosecutors, allowing any lawyer working for any federal, state, or local government agency to participate in covert law enforcement activities, even though the activities may require the use of deceit or misrepresentation. So restored that exception for law enforcement, lawyers working with law enforcement, but not for private lawyers. It did not allow that. Um, that's not where it ends. After that, the Supreme Court, the Oregon Supreme Court, the same one which had uh, said, you know, uh, slapped on Mr. Getty because the same rule had applied to everyone, amended their rules of professional responsibility to allow everybody, both government lawyers and private lawyers, to supervise undercover investigations involving deception, but not to participate personally in them. Okay, so that's a, that's another approach. So the, the court in one way reverse their position, but it was consistent because they said, if, it's, if we're gonna have one rule, it has to be one rule that applies for, for all lawyers. So that's an interesting little bit of history there. Um, let's just go back again, very briefly to follow up on this 4.1 and where we talked about these, uh, the necessity to uh, to disclose if it, uh, and if it's necessary in order to prevent uh, 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 or to avoid assisting in a crime or fraud. Gianna, do you have a, another question? Yeah, I just have a question. I feel like we may have touched on this, but I'm not entirely sure to what extent. So it's the case that state law is supposed to be, state ethics laws are supposed to be at least consistent with the model rules. Is that correct? Even if they further like qualify? No, they don't have to be. No, the okay. modern rules, they're, they're, they have no sort of enforcement authority to them. It's just because um, it's sort of the sort of the uh, 
moral authority of the fact that the ABA has, uh, has a, con a committee that drafts these rules mm -hmm. and thinks they're good rules, right? So right. states have all kinds of variations on them. So at the end of the, this is, yeah, this is probably a dumb question. I just kind of forgot. So at the end of the day, you have to follow exactly whatever, uh, you know, state bar rules you have. Exactly, yeah. Okay, even yeah. if that conflicts with the model rules. Unfortunately, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, so that's obviously a caveat throughout this course that, uh, uh, I mean, studying the model rules shows you what the issues are, right? Um, but then since every state has adopted at least a version of the model rules, at least if it's, a, if it's only the numbering the model rules uses, uh, you can look up New York's version or California's version of uh, 4.1 and see what they say. Okay. Um, all right, uh, just to continue, okay. Okay, um, 4.1 and 1.6, right? we've said that, that uh, if, it's, if it's necessary for the, the lawyer to disclose, to prevent, uh, to avoid assisting in the crime or fraud, the lawyer must disclose. However, it's not always necessary to do that. Uh, comment three says, ordinarily a lawyer can avoid assisting a crime or fraud simply by withdrawing from the representation, right? And you don't have to disclose then. Um, it may be necessary to, to um, give some sort of uh, disaffirmation of an opinion or document if the client is continuing to rely on the lawyer's work in committing their crime, right? So if, you know, if the lawyer withdraws, but the, the client is still using uh, an opinion letter or document uh, affidavit or whatever that the lawyer created for them to commit the crime or fraud, then 4.1 comes into play. Then withdrawing didn't have, uh, did not stop the lawyer from assisting in the, in the crime. They now have to do something to mitigate it and to remedy it. Okay, all right. Comment three also says, interestingly, um, this applies in extreme cases um, where this, du this duty to disclose applies in extreme cases uh, where substantive law may require this. That's not in the, it's not in the, the text of the rule at all, right? So this is another one of those comments you have to take with several large grains of salt maybe, right? Because this, this represents some kind of a count, uh, compromise that some lawyers on the drafting committee or in the ABA felt that it was important that it sh this duty disclosed should be extremely circumscribed and allowed only extreme cases. That's not the view that prevailed, but they did get their view into the comments. Right? And the comments have no mandatory authority on anybody, right? They're just meant to be guidance. Right? So these rules are a mess. They're gonna to have to figure out what, what the rule is in your jurisdiction. Uh, on the other hand, you know, disciplinary, disciplinary authorities and courts do place a high priority on the duty of confidentiality. So uh, they may still hold it to a relatively high standard in a case like this. Okay, other questions on this? All right. Um, this I'm just going to 
point at this. Okay, comment two, still on 4.1, not everything is a statement of fact, okay? And this is a fairly controversial provision in the comments uh, within the profession that basically it allows, it allows, allows lawyers to lie in the context of negotiation because of under generally accepted conventions in negotiation, certain things are not taken as statements of material fact. Right? It doesn't tell us what those are, but basically it allows things like, um, you say, this is my bottom line, I, I, I can't go below this or I can't go above this, that allows some fudge room, right? And we know that, the, and, and the, the, so the comment tells us 4.1 does not prohibit that. Uh, examples would be things like estimates of price, parties' intention as to an acceptable settlement. And there are some lawyers that object to this. I think that no, it, it, we shouldn't permit uh, lying, even in the just just because it's a negotiation. But uh, maybe those lawyers don't do much negotiation. I don't know. Okay, questions on four point one before we move on. Four point two. Okay, 4.2 is, is known as uh, often as, as the no contact rule, right? And simply means if, if you, so we're talking now about someone other than your client. This could be an opposing party, could be an, a witness, uh, anybody that might be, rep, where you might communicate them, with them in the context of representation. So if the lawyer knows that that other person is represented by a lawyer, the lawyer, may not communicate with that person unless they get the lawyer's consent, okay? When the lawyer knows that the other person is represented by, a by another lawyer, the lawyer has to get consent of the other lawyer. The person's consent is not sufficient, right? So again, this is, this is a somewhat paternalistic uh, rule protecting uh, Non non clients, right? In lay people, right? Uh, because a, a lawyer's job is to be persuasive, and they might very well be able to uh, try and persuade a person, even if they are represented by a lawyer. Well, you, you just go ahead and talk to me. It, it saves us all time. There's nothing, nothing's going to harm you. Um, the rule does not allow that. You have to get the consent of the other person's lawyer. Uh, otherwise, if you uh, find out that if you started communication and you find out that the party you're communicating with has a lawyer, you have to stop immediately. Okay. This does not prohibit communication with a represented person concerning matters outside the representation. So, for example, um, someone is suing the, uh, let's see, um, Niagara Frontier Transportation Agency. That's the thing, right? NFTA. Um, suppose you're suing, you're suing the NFTA on behalf of a client over something. That doesn't mean you can't talk to anyone else in the NFTA about any other matter. You just can't talk to them about this matter, right? Because you may have other matters that are going on with, with the NFTA. Um, okay, this can be a little confusing. Okay. Again, you know, questions arise when you're talking about uh, an organization, right? We've talked about 
organizations, when you represent an organization, you represent the organization, not the individuals within the organization. Um, so 4.2 does not prohibit speaking to anyone within a defendant organization. It, it, it prohibits talking with certain people, certain people who uh, supervise, direct, or consult with the organization's lawyer, have the authority to obligate the organization with respect to the matter, or whose omission or connect or act or omission may be imputed to the organization. Right? It sounds a little bit like um, like maybe the control group test under under uh, uh, attorney-client privilege that we talked about, right? So this it's easy to sort of confuse this test with attorney-client privilege. Uh, I think the the way to keep them straight is that they are essentially there are two different functions that serve two different purposes, right? Attorney-client privilege, what does that mean? So that means if, if it applies, if, if the communications you're trying to obtain um, are communications involving privileged persons and within an organization, a privileged person is determined by basically the up-down test, which we talked about, remember? So, um, so it doesn't prohibit you, know, you from getting any, com any communication, it prohibits communications that match that test, right? That match that specification. Uh, so it means that, the, um, that certain communications within the organization are privileged and the opposing lawyer can't get them, right? Cannot you know, uh, obtain them by subpoena, cannot ask someone to testify about them um, if those upjohn elements are met. 4.2 sort of works in the other direction. It says that a lawyer um, investigating uh, that organization may not interview certain people, right? So what's the difference? Uh, Attorney-client privilege refers to, protects communications, right? Basically protects past communications. You're trying to get evidence of uh, memos, conversations, between different parties within the organization that took place in the in connects in con the context of the, the matter that you're representing your client on. 4.2 would prohibit you from initiating conversations with new conversations, new communications with the, the parties themselves, with the constituents themselves. So under 4.2, you're not you're not trying to obtain evidence, or you're not trying to obtain documents or testimony. You're just gathering evidence, gathering information, investigating. So the lawyer, um, if they may not, if they can't get the documents or the uh, under, because it, the documents are privileged, right? They may still be able to just interview the people within the organization and get the information that way, right? Uh, the, the, but they could, would, could not interview certain people who match this um, this checklist of, of qualities? Okay, does that make sense? Again, it's sort of distinguishing attorney-client privilege from uh, this no contact rule, this, this prohibition on speaking uh, to or interviewing uh, constituents of an opposing party that's an organization. Okay. Um, 
you don't get need to get the organization's consent uh, for communicating with a former constituent, a former employee, or something like that. And if the constituent of the organization has their own lawyer, right, then that lawyer's consent is sufficient. You don't have to get the corporation's corporation's general counsel's consent if the uh, factory manager that you're interviewing has his own lawyer, that's all the consent you need. You need to get his that lawyer's consent. Okay. 4.3, um, what do you have, what do you do when you have, a, you're dealing with a person who does not have a lawyer? You're uh, speaking to, again, a witness maybe, or the uh, usually who does not have a lawyer. Um, the limitation, the, the guidance here is that a lawyer may not uh, state or imply that the lawyer is disinterested. That means that you know that that you that you don't you need to, they need to know that you have a stake in this case, right? That you're representing somebody, um, or at least you don't you you may not imply that you don't have a stake in this in this case. You may not let may not imply that maybe you're representing you know, you're offering to represent them. Um, and if the, uh, if the lawyer uh, suspects, comes to know that these, this unrepresented person misunderstands what the lawyer is doing and thinks maybe the lawyer is there to represent them, then the lawyer has to immediately correct that understanding, that misunderstanding. And then lawyer may not give legal advice to an unrepresented person other than the advice to get their own counsel. Okay. At least if the lawyer knows that they, they might need that protection because the person that they're interviewing, they're talking with has um, interest in, conf in conflict with the interests of your client. Okay. So there's this, um, this sort of fine line that uh, 4.3 requires lawyer to, to walk because you, we do want to allow lawyers to investigate. We do want to allow them to speak to people uh, and we don't want to prohibit it just because they don't have a lawyer, right? But at the same time, we won't, don't want to overstep and uh, allow that lawyer to take advantage of the unrepresented person. So the lawyer, we don't require the lawyer to say upfront, I'm investigating on behalf of my client. Um, what we do require the lawyer to say is if the person they're talking with doesn't understand and maybe thinks that the lawyer is there to help them, then the lawyer has to has to correct that misunderstanding. Okay, Gianna? Can you explain that a little bit? So if I'm a lawyer and I'm trying to investigate this person who does not have an attorney and I go up to them, can I just go up to them and start talking to them and not say that I'm a lawyer, period? Or do I need to say I'm a lawyer and I'm representing a client that's against you? Because it seems like if you don't clarify who you are, how can they not be confused about your role? It just seems uh, confusing to me. So you just sort of like initiate sort of casual conversation um, that happens to be about- fine. So like I, if I'm investigating, if I'm uh, yeah. you know representing a, uh, a workplace and you know the person got injured at work right and mm -hmm. like I see that he has this injury and I go up to him and I'm like oh what happened to your foot and he's like oh you know 
I like fell off this building and I'm like, oh, you know, how did that happen? And like, you're soliciting really mm. important information. That's okay. I'm just- I think you, I think in that case, you'd still run up against 4.1, uh, which prohibits omitting a, a material fact, right? So the fact that you're a lawyer is probably a material fact, right? Um, and and also you have the the, the eight point four C question: Are you are you engaging in deceit? You know, there's because the question there is like, how much information do you have to give to avoid being deceitful, right? And I think in the sort of situation you're describing, you would need to say, "I'm a lawyer." Um, you and again, depending on the court and so on. Um, maybe say that I'm a lawyer and I'm working on such and such a case. Uh, maybe even say that I'm representing so-and-so, right? That may not be strictly required by the rule, but it's probably good practice, safe practice, right? But if this, if this individual looks like someone who's gonna, or if they're gonna, someone who's gonna clam up once they hear that you're a lawyer, it seems to allow you to proceed up to a certain point, right? As long as you're as long as you're not misleading them into thinking that you're there to help them, so you're right. This is a, this is a tricky rule, right? Um, and again, it's a compromise that's meant to allow lawyers to do investigation, but not to take advantage of non-lawyers in doing so. And it's and it can be tricky to to decide how to apply that. Does that help? Um, Okay, there's also, this is, I think, surprising. Uh, but again, this is, I think, part of the compromise that go into this rule. Uh, this rule does not prohibit a lawyer from negotiating a transaction or settling a dispute with an unrepresented person, right? Which does not seem consistent with the idea of trying to protect that party, uh, if that's what the rule is trying to do, by saying, if your interests are in, in opposition to my clients, you should get your own counsel, right? However, um, if you don't have this that misunderstanding, the lawyer can still step in and negotiate that transaction, settle the, the, the dispute, uh, again, with, with their client's authority, right? Um, even if that other, that other party is not represented, right? Which seems to me, uh, somewhat unfair, but that that is the rule that or that's the comment anyway. Again, this is a comment, right? So take that for what it's worth. Not every not every jurisdiction would uh, apply that comment, or you know. Uh, but even it does say that the lawyer may do things like inform the person of the terms, prepare documents, right, um, and explain the lawyer's own view of the meaning of the document, which seems to allow a lot of. Uh, abuse or allow room for abuse but that is the, that is the rule or the comment brian yeah it seems like if you if it didn't allow for that then you would be have a lot of circumstances where if the other person didn't go and get in a lawyer then you just wouldn't be able to talk to them right you know if there's somebody so, is interested in getting a lawyer to represent them um and you've told them that you're a lawyer representing somebody if you know 
if if you couldn't continue to talk to them unless they got a lawyer, that would that would shut down a lot of things. I mean, it's sort of like well, is is that is that a is that a bad thing? Suppose well, the lawyer, I, suppose the other party just doesn't want to get involved or doesn't want to engage in this transaction, right? Well, I mean, Can a lawyer force force that transaction through by just saying I'm going to do this anyway? I mean, can you really force somebody into a transaction? I mean, I'm sure in some circumstances you may be, you might be able mm -hmm. to. But I mean, it seems like people have the ability to just say no. Okay. But do you really want to put them in? I guess what I'm suggesting is it is it mm -hmm. sort of putting putting people in a position where like if like they have to get a lawyer to mm -hmm. to, to talk to you. Well, it doesn't require that other party to consent to proceed without a lawyer. It doesn't require any any sort of informed consent, um, really. Uh, I don't know. I see what you're saying, but um, I, I'm not sure that that you know. If if they're, they're involved in a trans, some sort of transaction, sort of sort of negotiation, maybe. If the other party just was, doesn't want to play anymore, doesn't want to involve, be in, engage in the transaction, <coughs> they should have the. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. They should have the right to just walk out, or the the ability to. Excuse me. So I I have to think about that. I think that's an interesting point that you make. But I'm still not sure that I'm happy with it. Maybe you're happy with it. And that's fine. <clears throat> I mean, other people could think about how, what what they think of this provision. Excuse me. I'm blaming it on pollen. So, all right, we have 17 minutes, so I think we have just time to walk through um, problem 12-3. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to give you um, six, about uh, five minutes on this one too. It asks a series of questions, but um, <coughs> they're pretty quick questions about uh, sending this investigator to go talk to uh, another party. So I'll give you five minutes on this one and I'll see you again in a few. Okay, I think we can sort of go through some of these questions fairly quickly. Uh, let's see, Rachel Farr, I haven't called her new yet, have I, today? Yes, I'm here. Okay, I see you. Um, for the first question, is there anything would stop uh, um, stop Miss Fox from visiting DeBello at all? Um. I, I, we said that she can visit her. Um, I feel like maybe the if she asked them to stay away, she might have to be, just because like this since this is a case about order of protection, there might mm -hmm. uh, be something about like you know if she asked not to be contacted by the guy who she has an order of protection 
against if she asked not to be contacted by his counsel, then maybe that wouldn't be allowed, but otherwise it's fine. Okay, uh, under the rules, you know, we know that you, he, the, the fellow uh, or the lawyer, neither the law, lawyer nor his assistant, Ms. Fox, can go talk to this client if she has a lawyer. We have no evidence here that she has a lawyer, right? So lawyer, they can go ahead and talk with her, or they, she, she should probably ask, ask if she's represented. And if, because it seems likely that she would want to be represented. So we, what you want to, you couldn't, you could go do the conversation, but ask if she's represented and in that case, stop. Um, so that's good. Um, what else does she have to say? Does, does uh, Fox have to have to say that uh, DeBello has no obligation to speak to her, that anything she says may be used against her in court or that she should obtain a lawyer? Um, we oh, uh, we said yeah. no. We said no because um, that might be considered legal advice and you're not allowed to give someone who's unrepresented legal advice. Right, and, and there's no requirement here for a, a Miranda warning, uh, so it doesn't need, need that. Um, there might be a requirement to say that she should obtain a lawyer since this is um, not the, I mean, it's a criminal claim. Well, what is this, a protective order? Yeah, so it's a civil claim. So there, her interests are in opposition to your client's interests. So that would be permitted, the, the, the rule does permit the lawyer to, to give that advice, but doesn't require it. Although in this case, um, I think it would be a very good idea to do so. You know, think, think of these rules, uh, 4.3 and 4.2 maybe it is, again, they're kind of fuzzy and in some ways they're kind of a, a, a minimum of what the lawyer should do, right? That if you don't if you don't go beyond them, you may not be sanctionable for it. But good lawyering might might require giving a little more information. Gianna, um, I'm just confused because Rule four point three says you may not give legal advice to someone whose um, you know uh, interests are adverse to your client. So in this case, other than, other than the advice to secure counsel. Okay, so right. so the first you know. Don't, don't tell her anything else. Don't give her any other advice, but you can advise her that she should seek counsel. That is permitted. Um, oh, may Fox say that she works for a lawyer who is Kretko's court appointed counsel? What's the problem with that? Why, or why is that a question? Brian? Yeah, I think if you're trying to be scrupulous about this rule, you should probably just say that you're Krupko's attorney because the whole situation with the guardian ad litem before may make may lead her to think that, um, especially since she doesn't have a lawyer. I mean, what she really needs is a lawyer, but um, because she was really shook up when the judge chastised her for not cooperating with the court appointed guardian ad litem, she may be confused if you tell her that um, you've been appointed by the court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this in the real, this was a DC case and the court in that, in that situation was troubled by using the word phrase court appointed because not everybody knows what that means, right? And, and she might think that that means that 
that the court is appointing her or this person as sort of a an objective lawyer to oversee the matter or something like that. So it uh, may not understand that 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 uh, the lawyer here represents uh, Kretko. So yeah, so it's probably best to avoid legalese in situations like this when you're talking to to uh, non lawyers. Uh, may Fox ask DiBello to sign a written statement? And comment two says, yes, we, we just talked about that. The lawyer does not prohibit, uh, the rule does not prohibit a lawyer from negotiating the terms or settling a, uh, or prepare documents that require the person's signature. Uh, lawyer may, the lawyer may do that. Right. Lawyer may prepare documents that require the person's signature. So, um, could could she say that uh, Debello needs to sign the form? Mitchell. Yeah, our, our group said no, just because I feel like that's you know bordering on giving legal advice. You you would be advising them that they essentially should sign the form, which, you know, possibly that is not in their best interest. Yeah, and I think it's also somewhat uh, a sort of an, an ambiguous term, maybe to a non-lawyer, because needs to might, might, might be interpreted as I'm legally required to, or yeah, and, and she's not legally required to do that. So yeah, that's, that's good. Um, so yeah, so good, everybody. And we have four minutes to spare. Um, through a lot of stuff today so thank you for for keeping up i appreciate it it's beautiful weather uh, i hope you all have a good weekend we have another quiz the last quiz is this weekend don't anybody forget to do it um it'll be uh, as usual be available saturday morning due uh, at midnight on sunday and the usual five questions and i guess that's it alva Wait, is it available Friday or Saturday morning? Because in the past, it's been available Friday mornings and then done by Saturday at midnight. Is, this is that right? Thank you, yes. Yeah, so it'll be available fr Friday morning and due Saturday at midnight. Got it, thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm, okay. Thanks. Um, all righty. I like your chair, by the way, too. It looks very comfy. Thanks. All right, so I will see you uh, on Monday. Have a good weekend, everybody. All right. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.